How come you didn't send out a note that it was no bra Monday? I mean, (laughs) I I got it completely ready. (laughs) You know, it's just this pandemic has brought out a whole new host of possibilities. That it has. We've really learned to uh, be creative, find the things we value. So yeah. all this, all these great things happening. Here I had my laptop plugged into my car, so be fully charged. We don't have a good internet connection, so I have to come down and hang out by the lake. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you poor thing. I'm I know, so isn't this sorry. terrible? <laughs> See, you know what? Even this, the way that you're putting together this podcast is yoga in action. You know, it's recognizing that there may be obstacles, but you're going to do it anyway. And there's a way to, to work with it and not against it. Yeah. Um, it's really cool. You are an, the embodiment of this practice. Yoga Off the Mat is a podcast about life and all of its blunders, bloopers, and blissfulness. Yoga is not a sequence of pretzel shapes that we practice on the mat. It's an intentional lifestyle. I'm your host, Teresa Macy, certified yoga therapist, yogini, licensed massage therapist, and quite possibly certifiably nuts about this crazy, beautiful world we live in together. Join me on this journey of life through conversations and connections. Welcome to the real life world of yoga at Yoga Off the Map. Wherever we're going, I could not say for sure. Because you are one of my absolute, without a doubt, favorite yoginis in the entire world. Um, so, <laughs> Well, you know, in the world of reflection, it becomes clearer and clearer when that comes up. Because you say that to me, but I feel that way about you. So in the easy relationships, like this is easy to say that because I feel it so naturally and so abundantly for you and you feel that for me too. So that it just, it's easy to see where reflection comes in, where it's harder is when the shadow comes in. (laughs) Oh, you're like, you no, but it's, you know, also. Yes. That's when we are reminded that there is no light without dark, that we have to look into those shadows just as, uh, with just as much curiosity as we look into the light so that we can really get that clear picture of what we're seeing, what we're doing, and really just not eliminate anything. You know, one of my teachers told me, if you eliminate any part of you, there's no way you can ever be whole. Yeah. And you know what? I think what you say speaks, it's so important today to speak to that because there is a lot of it. There was this guy, I wrote his name down. His name was, is John Wellwood. He's a Buddhist, and he, at least in the early 80s, when he coined the term spiritual bypassing, he's a Buddhist psychotherapist. And he was noticing, not only in his clients and in, his, in himself, but in, in himself as well, that you know we look to these practices and these studies as maybe ways to just you know be bathing in the light and to you know find that bliss, which is a potential piece of the experience with practice. But he noticed a lot of the spiritual bypassing, avoiding the unfinished business, avoiding the shadow, you know, trying to placate in some way the darkness in service of the light, and it. It, it, and you can see it a lot today, you know, where everything is good and everything is lovely and just, you know, visualize. And, and I'm not poo-pooing visualization, but I think that without a context or without a purpose, it becomes another possible way to escape rather than head right in. 
you know? And I think for me anyway, the practice is about diving in and dealing with what's real and meeting things as they are. And sometimes they fucking suck, you know? <laughs> and so to let it suck, you know, not to just be like, you remember the Seinfeld Serenity Now? Yeah. <laughs> George's dad goes up there and like, oh, I just have to say Serenity Now. And at the end, Kramer's throwing shit. He's got the computers breaking. He's, you know, poor George is now out of his business because all in this Serenity Now. And I don't think that's what yoga is. I know we haven't even started the formal part of this this podcast, but you know, get me, wind me up, sister. Me up. <laughs> well, actually, we did because the first part of the podcast is just chatting. So I'll pick <laughs> out the best parts of that, <laughs> which is why I start the recording as soon as we start because sometimes those nuggets are in the place where we're not paying attention to what we're really doing. We're, we're just our authentic self, having a conversation, two friends getting together and chatting about the things that we love that are important. So when I worked at Wetlands. We had this guy, an amazing man. He ended up dying early, young of a heart dis condition he didn't know he had. But he used to record every show that was played at Wetlands. Even if there were three people in the audience and it was an unknown band, he was there every night recording because he said, you never know when you're going to get the gold. You just never know when you're going to hear that amazing piece of music that otherwise would have just never been heard or forgotten. And, you know. Yeah, yeah we got to find, find those moments when they show up. For today, since I have my favorite yogini here, <laughs> I would like to take this first opening moment to just for one brief second close our eyes find our breath and take this moment to set an intention you know yoga off the mat is about understanding intentional lifestyle So as you set that intention, let's bring the hands to heart center. Allow the head to gently bow. And with that intention set, quietly and silently, set it free. Well, thank you for joining us on Yoga Off the Mat. I would like to welcome my very dear and wonderful friend, Sherry Sadoff-Hank. I like to start by kind of giving a little backstory to how our paths crossed. How and when, oh, sometimes we forget when that very first moment of intersection is, but then we begin to see all the times that our journeys overlap with one another or we walk side by side on our own missions and intentions raising whatever that vibration is so some of my ah what can i say about cherry you know it's always hard to have an intro because you have to do, you have to pick and choose just a couple <laughs> of things to add in so the very first thing about cherry is she's an amazing yogini so we met at our home studio, the Prancing Peacock in Yardley, Pennsylvania. We practiced on the mat together. Um, I had the honor of being an, an anatomy teacher in Cherry's teacher training. 
we studied and practiced yin together through another teacher training. Um, the thing I love the most, my very favorite thing, well, I have two of them, are Sherry's words. Sherry has the best words, and she always knows how to use them and put them together to be uplifting and supportive and inspiring. She doesn't know this, or maybe she does, that I hated poetry. I didn't understand poetry at all, all those years in high school. Sherry gave me my very first poetry book, and she has also authored, I think, three of her own poetry books. And ever since that day, at the end of each of my class, I channel Sherry's energy by reading a poem, either from her book or the very first book that she gave me. So she introduced me to a love of words. Um, ah, that was just so amazing um, and has been so inspiring and has challenged me to dig deeper and understand some of those meanings in the shadows. She is also a fabulous deadhead and loves everything Grateful Dead. <laughs> uh, so you know that there's always going to be music when you hang out with Sherry, but the very, the thing that everybody must know and anybody who has ever met Sherry is that she gives the best hugs in the entire world and I miss them so desperately. So I just can't wait to be back and get those. So please um, welcome Sherry. Thank you. What a beautiful introduction. And let me tell you a secret that maybe you didn't know and maybe I shouldn't be saying out declaring to the universe, but I never really liked poetry either. It was never something that I studied or had an interest in. It, it confounded me. You know, as a theater person, um, I was an actor in my first life. Shakespeare confounded me. People would talk about the imagery and I'm like, what imagery? I'm not <laughs> seeing it. I don't get it. Until I was introduced to Mary Oliver, who wrote poetry in a way that I could understand. It was natural. It was, you know, there were, it didn't feel like it was deliberately confounding in any way. Um, and I found, because as a writer, you're right, I, I do love words. I love the most exotic words, and I love to, you know, pound the, you know, the expression with a big fuck at the end of it, too. Like, I think words are words. Um, but what I loved about poetry when I started writing it was that I could use words in a short form, and I didn't have to, you know, go into length to tell a huge story. But I could imply the story, and the implication was, was known because it was in a poetic setting. Um, and so that turned me on. And then I started reading more, reading some Billy Collins and I've got some other, you know, of course, Rumi and, and other poets. Um, so that my own poetry and as a result of Mary Oliver, I would never put myself on the same plane as her, but she was the one who, who spoke in, in simple enough terms, but with enough, enough depth and color and texture that it turned me on. So you're not alone. Uh, I did not know that about you. That's a big secret. <laughs> I'll try not to let it out to anybody that doesn't I, listen to the podcast. Now. That's out of the bag. Yeah. You have to be at the podcast to know Sherry's deepest secrets. <laughs> I need to own your stuff, right? So yeah. I have to own that too. And it's, you know, um, anyway. Yeah, we all grow, right? And I think that's part of our journey is that we're able to look back and, you know, see, see the trail. Um, I'm a, uh, as you know, a full-time RVer and many of the listeners do as well. I love to be out in nature and out for a hike. Um, what a grateful time I'm having right now 
because getting out in nature and finding paths that are less traveled, uh, we're in the perfect time for it, right? To be able to commune with nature and still have that um, space to yourself. And I really think that, you know, my training as a yogi and understanding that what we practice on the mat is really just a way of informing how we live our life. It's the practice. And although we have so many things to learn, no matter how many classes we go to and how many teachers I study with, there's always more to learn. But I always remind myself that what I practice here is a way of helping me to decide what I, what I keep in my intentional lifestyle, what my lifestyle looks like. And so we have a couple of things in yoga. And the first one that I really wanted to talk to you about is the practice of self-study, of Savidya. Right. I knew you were going to say that. And I was, you know, you know, what's in a word, you know, uh, how do you pronounce it? I say Svadhyaya, but I don't know for sure. Cause you know, it's not a, it's a, you know, not an oral transmission like that. It's, it's written, right? So yeah. Sanskrit is so hard, no matter how many times I look it up and I try and, and sound out the words, right. I probably get them right a fraction of the time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what's in the name though? But yes, the self-study, that is huge. And you know, I was thinking about this a lot because um, back in 1998, it was either 98 or 99, I was working with a friend who was, um, she was doing a business plan for a concierge service. Because you know, in the 90s with the dot-com bubble, people were offering all sorts of incentives to employees. And so she wanted to offer a concierge service. We lived in New York City and it seemed like, we'll walk your dog, we'll get your cleaning out, whatever. Um, so we're working on this business plan together. And she says to me one day, she's like, Sherry, you've got to take Lippy's class. It's like, what's a Lippy and what class? <laughs> I don't know. And it turns out it was a yoga teacher at Om Yoga, Cindy Lee's, um, her first studio in New York City, 14th between, I think it was 6th and 7th or 7th and 8th, whatever, 6th and 7th. Um, and I remember getting there and feeling like, I know you didn't ask me this particular question, but it's, we're going to do that circular. We'll get back there. Yeah. And you know, Larry, you got your work cut out for you. Um, and I remember going in, I, I was never an athlete or a dancer. I was an actor. So I had to take, you know, dance classes, but I was never a good dancer unless I had a martini and there was a DJ playing and I could get in a cage and, you know, dance with the best of them. But these were, even in the beginner's classes there, there were ex-New York City ballerinas reclaiming their alignment, reclaiming their bodies. So these were bodies that were in many ways trained to be somewhat hypermobile or were naturally hypermobile, able to do these really big you know, poses. Um, but at that time, it wasn't sold in that way. Even though Yoga Journal was kind of new and there was this, this idea of what yoga was, it seemed to me at that point, after taking this Lippy's class, who I still love, and she's amazing, she was a bit irreverent, and I liked that. I kind of expected that it was just going to be lots of love and peace, which as a deadhead, I'm all for, but it, it felt like a natural extension of the path I was already on, but it wasn't so, you know, it wasn't about doing a handstand, and it wasn't about, you know, what other people were doing, even though the classes were, were very well attended, and a lot of people were, were very good at these poses. Um, but I left that first day feeling even a little frustrated, a little annoyed, a little confused and sore, but I knew that something magical had happened, and I didn't want that train leaving the station without me. 
<laughs> Even though there was the, the insecure part of me that had no idea what was going on, knew that my body was not going to do what the other bodies were doing. But I had spent my career to that point and my study to that point always feeling a little less than when it came to the dance part or the, the musical mm. part of, of the theater. So um, I was accustomed to that. Um, and as time went on, I started noticing those connections on and off the mat. You know, what was that insecurity that I lived with off the mat that I brought on the mat with me? And how did I cope with it in that situation where I didn't know the language? And at one point um, she came over to me, I'm in triangle pose. And she says, everyone come over and let's look at Sherry. And I thought, oh, <laughs> my hand is on the ground. I've got this. I'm the model. She's using me as a model. <laughs> You see how she's all crunched under the side? You see how she's really striving to get to the ground? And, you know, she moved me in a way that I didn't even know that there was room to grow. Yeah. I had no idea. I thought, my hand's on the ground, my other arm's up, I'm in it. But there were so many nuances, so many little things. But then there was that inner voice that said, she's not using you as a model. Why would she ever use you as a model? You don't do what they're doing. You know, they're looking to see what not to do, um, which... I love that story now. I love having that in my history. I love knowing that my ego was put in check in that moment. And that's what that meant. It wasn't that you were less than. It's like we have something to learn from this. This is a learning moment and a teaching moment. So um, after I gathered my, <laughs> got back to my mat in that moment, I was a lot sharper in my observations, a little bit sharper in my listening. And over the years, so by the time we met, I had been practicing for about 10 years. I still, after 20 plus years of practice, I, my body doesn't do a handstand. Mm. It's, I can do a headstand at the wall, but if I do a, head, a handstand, my proprioception shifts and I always bang my head coming down. I can come down from a headstand, but not, I don't know what that is, but I've given up caring about that piece. So when you said, you know, you're a great yogi, there was a time in my practice not so long ago that I would have really questioned you about that. But that's asana, that's not yoga as a full practice. And so for those of us who are not born with the hypermobile ability to get into pretzel shapes or the vestibular or proprioceptic way to, to know to go up and down in certain ways, that doesn't does not preclude us from this practice or becoming really deep practitioners and students of this practice. So in my own svadhyaya, my own self study, this has been a huge journey, and um, you know that shadow follows me even as I feel confident in where I am. There's still enough of that that keeps me questioning, which I love. I don't ever want to be so self-identifying as a yoga teacher that I forget that I'm a student. I don't want to over-identify with any part of myself that, like you were saying before, if we don't own it all, then we don't get to experience it all. And so it all comes back to that. And this self-study piece, if we continue to teach the spiritual bypassing. I've even heard teachers that I love and respect, you know, talk about meditation in a way that there's the, the assumption that it's an escape. There's an assumption that, oh, you're just going to bliss out. Well, I practice mindfulness meditation. And let me tell you something. It is very rarely a blissful experience. It is often effort and work to sit there, to work with boredom, to work with the thoughts, 
And again, the, the misunderstandings that come in that I also have to watch myself as I judge other people in their understanding, if it doesn't match my own, then are they misunderstanding or am I, or are there many ways to understand something? So there are hundreds of ways to meditate and some of them valuable in the guided meditations that can help the heart rate slow down, that can take you out, that is that can be used as somewhat of an escape as you're walking through, you know, these mountain ranges or these deserts or oceans or wherever you are that are going to bring in that bliss. We need that now. But if you're going to choose to do a practice like mindfulness meditation, understand that that's not what that is. <laughs> and that um, I've noticed people showing up expecting that and then not getting that and then falling off. And that's okay too. It's not for everyone. But I think that that meditation piece is a key aspect to self-study. It's a key aspect to the asana, to the whole yoga program. Um, until my yoga, my meditation practice became something that I was not going to negotiate, that it was something that was happening daily, I didn't understand that because it was something I could be like, all right, that's the peripheral. It's something I can, you know, invite in when I want. But it's a discipline, it's a practice, and it is, it's necessary, I think. Yeah, those, there's anything you asked. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it covered everything that I asked. That was perfect. Um, yeah, I remember a couple of things that came to mind while you were speaking. Um, one is the, when my meditation practice became non-negotiable, and I recognized that it was, yes, I set time aside during the day. For meditating but the times that I find that it really is powerful and it comes into my life is when somebody cuts me off on the highway and I can take that breath and just okay am I sitting there with my eyes closed oming no but am I connecting with the energy that I practice that says okay it's time to sit back and you know be calm recognize what's going on or let out what's what needs to be let out right we don't always have to hold it in sometimes you know <laughs> whatever you need to say right there to get rid of that energy is 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 okay as long as you're by yourself and you're not you know <laughs> yelling with at somebody else but when i took your class and you challenged us to um meditate with our eyes open i remember i was like oh we're going to meditate with our eyes open Wow. It was so challenging to get my brain to stay focused on anything at all. So what I learned in the experience was, again, part of meditation. It's not necessarily about clearing things out or always having this blissful experience. It's about accepting what is, maybe not engaging in the conversation, but noticing, wow, look at all these things that are coming up. Even, you know, the permission that you gave as you were leading saying, you know, if keeping your eyes open is really difficult, you can choose to close them. <laughs> so the empowerment, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the lineage that I practice and study and teach, um, there are two differences in the basic mindfulness um, instruction that we do. This comes from Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. Um, the eyes open at a soft gaze down four to six feet in front of you. On the one hand, it it keeps that transition from closed eyes to open eyes being, you know, it's a practice of awakening. So we spend most of our time with our eyes open, most of our time awake. So that transition at the end is less jarring. 
it's as if you were awake the whole time because you were. Mm -hmm. The other thing is we're not eliminating any of the senses. So the eyes are open so that we can take in. We're not closing off our hearing. We're not closing off our sense of smell or taste or feel. Why close off our sense of sight? And does closing your eyes really, I mean, I guess if you're changing your drishti and, and I actually, another secret, I prefer to have my eyes closed in meditation. <laughs> and it's much easier to find that zone that I dig. You know, I'm in that zone. Um, but eyes open, I tend to nod out a little bit more. I tend to, you know, move my eyes a little bit more. Um, but I have found it to be extremely powerful. Also, um, the other thing, the other instruction that is different is that when we recognize that our mind has wandered, we label our thought thinking to ourselves yes. and return to the breath. And that piece, rather than simply acknowledging it and coming back to the breath, the saying thinking is what Pema Chodron would say, it's a, gent it's a way to practice gentleness with yourself. It's a way to acknowledge that you've been thinking, but not to beat yourself up over it, not to think that one thought is better than another thought, but that just, oh, I was thinking, and return to your breath. And not only is it a gentleness, but it's a precision. It's that prajna. It's that, that sort of precision that we say, oh, that's what I was doing, now I'm coming back. And it's very simple. But I want to go back to the car thing because you speak to one of my biggest shadows is driving and needing yoga most when I'm driving. That at one point I started, I, I got the website, I was going to do this whole thing, Dharma at the Wheel, Yoga for Road Rage. Because I thought it was so clever, you know, the Dharma wheel and the steering wheel. And when we, you know, what are some of the practices that we can do in the moment? But like noticing that you're thinking, you have to notice first that you're out of it. You have to notice first that you've gone off the rails in order to come back, in order to take that breath, in order to yell, fuck, if you just need to, or, you know, whatever your expression is. Um, so, yeah, it all <laughs> makes full circle. <laughs> but it also helps, helps people to understand you know, especially people who haven't tried or practiced yoga, um, that yoga, yes, we go to a studio or you get a video or now you're on Zoom and you, you sit down with a specific teacher and start your study. But, you know, I, I always like to remind people, you know, it's the same as studying any book that you pick up. You're not studying it to sit in front of that book for the rest of your life. You're not studying <laughs> yoga to be on that mat for the rest of your life. Not that I won't always go back to my back to my mat as a place to study and to visit with my teachers. But the reason that we're studying is to inform our lifestyle, to see our own shadows, to learn the practices that are taught. Um, and all of the subtleness that we could easily walk through life and miss, right? Like one of the things I really have become like my go-to that I've learned on my mat is that every breath I take is connected to some sort of an emotion. That the, this friendship and relationship with my breath just informs me all the time. It helps me understand my moods, it sees it sees and it feels when the breath starts to speed up and, and I'm getting anxious or frustrated, my brain starts to recognize through that practice and said, oh, Teresa, you're feeling a little frustrated. Maybe not specifically in, hey, Teresa, you're feeling frustrated, although I do use my name when I talk to myself. <laughs> <laughs> 
but it does help me to understand that my emotion just shift for, shifted for some reason. And this might be the perfect time to just take that pause. You know, mm -hmm. sometimes it's the briefest of pauses that we need to give us the information that's moving by us so quickly and maybe unnoticed. And to me, that's advanced practice right there. And it has nothing to do with a shape that you're in, except that you're in the shape that you're in, whatever that is. And I think one of the things that, and I noticed from my own journey, that the tendency to relinquish my power because I'm sure that the teacher knows more than I do. And at this point in my practice, I can't always be sure of that. And it's not even a, a, a knowing like I know more than you, but from practice and what I've learned. So when a teacher tells me that a certain shape will do X, Y, and Z, and it's not, if I have, you know, I'm, it hurts my knee to be in a certain position, I will change my position now. I'll experience what they're telling me first, and then I'll move my body in a way that I feel is safe and that, that I can sustain. Because you always said it, and I know that I got it from you about listening to the whispers before they turn to screams. And so I think we give our power away. And especially as new students, as teachers, we have a responsibility to let them know that we are also students that we may, because of our experience and our practice and our teaching or whatever, be able to verbalize certain things with some clarity, that that doesn't mean that I know more than you do, you're in your body. If I tell you something's gonna happen and it's not happening for you, guess who's right? You are, sure. <laughs> you are right. I had a teacher once who had had some back pain early on. And I know, speaking of each breath being a part of an emotion, um, I knew that anytime my back went out, a pattern began to emerge. And it was my back would go out right before I was about to achieve something that I didn't think I was worthy of. So mm -hmm. whether it was going to the Warriors Assembly after my first meditation training back in 2000, whatever it was, um, back went out, couldn't, I made the arrangements, couldn't make it because I couldn't move. Teacher training, same thing. I can't do a handstand. What business do I have being a yoga teacher? Back went out, couldn't move. Third time, had to you know, access my shrink father to help me get to the, to the thing. But the point was that I, the emotional piece was there. And I was in acute pain, but I went to a class with a teacher who I love. And I love the human that she is. But I didn't know her well at this point. And she came up behind me, said something about my cobra being shit. She didn't say that, but it, it felt like that's how I translated. Cobra's for shit. So she comes up behind me. And it was um, a cue that I don't love, like this melt your heart cue. I come into yoga with a gushy heart. You know, it's already melted by the time I come in. Oh, you want me to soften my sternum down and lift my shoulders back? That's a different cue. That I got, yeah. But she comes from behind and she starts pounding in my middle back. Melt your heart, melt your heart. And she's like pounding them. And I told her my back had hurt, it was hurting. And I said, ouch, please stop doing that. But I also, you know, gave my power away to her. I thought, oh, well, maybe this is the cure-all. Maybe this will help my back. And it didn't. And I thought, I can't, I can't take a class from this teacher anymore at this time because she wasn't listening to me. And I wasn't in a position where I was listening to my body with wisdom. Um, and so that changes too. Like, I think today I would take her class. And I think today I could verbalize more clearly my needs and, you know, whatnot. But as students, as self-study, to not give your power away, you know, ask questions, ask your teachers questions because, you know, we, we have a tendency to, I always tell this, this is what I was, the story I always tell at, um, in the beginning of trainings when people say, oh, so why are you here? And yeah, as a vegan, I have to figure out a new, a new, um, subject. 
Um, but they, so this little girl is watching her mom make a pot roast or whatever, you know, fill in whatever she's making. She cuts off one end and she cuts off the other end and she puts it into the pan and makes it. And she says, mommy, why did you do that? She says, well, my mother always did that. So she goes, oh, she sees her grandmother and she says, Grammy, why did you cut off each end before you put the pot roast in the oven? She says, well, my mother did that. So of course this one, this girl has like a great, 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 great grandmother who's still alive. They all cut it off at the ends. She's able to ask. She gets to this great, 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 great grandmother. She says, great, 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 great granny. Why do you cut off the end meat at both ends? She said, the pan was too small. <laughs> so, you know, we, we tend to take the, our lineage, our teachers, or their words and, and speak them. And I'm guilty of this too. I shouldn't even say guilty. I, I have done this and catch myself when I still do it. Um, because unless you know why, you know, what value does it have to your student? If we're just parroting what someone else said because it sounds good and it feels, it sounds right, then it only goes a certain distance. But then someone gets pain, then something else happens, and you have to, you have to answer to your direction. And so um, it's really a student-teacher relationship. We have to build these relationships. Yoga used to be a one-teacher, one-student relationship. So they each got to know each other pretty well. And so in these, the challenge of teaching groups, and now the challenge of teaching groups on Zoom, I think I'm far less a better teacher now on Zoom, even though it's, it's convenient and it's, it's valuable for these times. Um, but to be able to teach, you have to see bodies. You have to be able to touch bodies. You have to be able to be in relationship. Um, and I think that's something that's suffering now. I agree with you. Um, I find it very challenging and I think it it calls me to have to pay a whole different type of mindfulness and attention now that I teach on zoom mm -hmm. in in a lot of different ways because I really have to work to feel the energy you know you walk into the studio a lot of what we do is informed by the energy that we connect with what we feel um, seeing people as they're setting up their their mats and getting their props watching people walk there's all of our senses come into play. Mm -hmm. On Zoom, we don't have that experience so much. People are already set up, they're ready to practice, they pop on at the beginning of class. So that relationship building is a little bit more challenging and it is not only challenging as the teacher, but to make mm -hmm. sure and be able to um, know if your words are landing the way that they need to because you can't see reactions. So, you know, I remember in teacher training, one of my teachers, when we were, when we we're learning to find our voice, we're learning to cue what's going on. <laughs> and it's always the funny thing that happens in a yoga studio because they'll say, so the person you're cueing is the only person in the whole room who's not changing their shape, <laughs> right? <laughs> you got this. And everybody's like, is she talking to me? Is she talking to me? <laughs> and they start to make subtle adjustments, except for uh -huh. the person that you are actually speaking to, which is hard <laughs> to see um, in a Zoom setting. So I think we are challenged in, in ways to find smaller interactions. How can we still be of service? And since we're on Zoom, how do we make that work in smaller interactions? You know, as a yoga therapist, a lot of what we do is targeted to specific groups who have commonalities mm -hmm. because we're looking um, at it more than what people might look at as a group class, right? Where you can have somebody in your group class who has 
a knee problem, a back problem, I feel great, everything shows up. In yoga therapy, we try and bring our, our groups into smaller groups and have some uniting thing. So I remember you were there, I'm sure, when I taught my first issues in the tissues class. Oh my gosh, it was, it was in the nest at the Prancing Peacock. What a beautiful room with um, the blue sky and, and the, um, the clouds painted on the sky. It was big, open um, windows with so much light coming in. And I was so happy that I was like, oh, I'm going to do this yoga thing, issues in the tissues. And people started coming in. <laughs> and I'd say, so how are you? And I kept getting the same answer. Oh, I'm just an old lady with, you know, aches and pains because it was an issues in the tissue. So what am I expecting? Right. That's what's showing up. And so I noticed the first couple of classes, I kept getting that same thing like, oh, I'm just here to work on my bad leg or my bad knee or my terrible shoulder and all of these words. Right. We started with what great words you have and how you put them together. And I would walk into class and find that the words were the things that were really capturing my attention. And I was like, what is going on with this? And so I remember they came in for maybe the third or fourth class people showed up and I was like, all right, we have a new rule. <laughs> <laughs> and the rule is we don't have any bad pot body parts. We're going to, and, and this is where our self-study came in. Why are we calling that leg bad? Like, right? We don't want to diss it, not like, or I just, and, and that was the other thing. I wish it would just go away. And I was like, we don't want to set the intention that that leg is going to go away, right? <laughs> we want to listen to it. And it really started, it was one of those things that transformed my teaching was paying attention to words, right? What words are you using? Words have power. They're important. So let's choose them wisely. So we started talking to our bodies in different ways. And that brought in our emotions, right? What emotional thing is going on? Why is it a bad leg? What's the emotion that's attached to that? Or why do you want it to go away, right? You don't really want your low back to go away, but what is it that's in there that you're hoping to understand? So we changed it and said, Hey, me, what is it you're trying to tell me? What are you asking of me? And everything began to change. You changed my life with those words too. Just the way that I think about my own body. If things are going on, what are you trying to tell me? What's your story? You know, not separate from my story, but what is this chapter? What is this page telling me that I'm not looking at, that I only skimmed and not read, right? Yeah. Um, and it's also one of the many reasons I think that you are one of, and just a little something about the person you're listening to starting this podcast, Miss Teresa Macy, who is one of the most highly skilled practitioners and teachers that I've studied with. And I've studied with a lot of really great teachers. And, but because you are not tethered, and I've said this to you before, tethered to any one lineage, though you have lineage, you know, in different areas that inform you, you're not stuck in what someone else said. You know why you cut the meat off at both ends. You are very clear about that because your understanding of the body, your ability to, to absorb, to read the room, that's something that is this read the room, not only the room of the studio, but the room of your body. 
all the rooms in our bodies, to be able to access their stories and to be able to transmute them into a, a practice that will help alleviate suffering is, is just blows my mind that you, you've so many different ways in, yet you have woven a braid of all of these different traditions, whether it's from you know massage therapy, anatomy, breath work, yoga, all of the things that you do, right? living in the RV, everything that you've done is woven into this incredible braid that you then transfer to us in a very unique voice. Because many of us are, you know, they're either stuck in, I won't say stuck, who are, um, who are committed to one lineage. I, I've, I've always been a buffet person myself. Example, <laughs> because I am easily, I am easily, what's the word? You always say my words. I'm easily um, uh, affected by people. I, I can like just, oh, that's right. You sound so good. I'm with you. I am easily not manipulated, but um, yes, yes, yes. And so in order to, to find discernment, I need to hear different voices. And what you bring in is different voices. You're not parroting one. You're bringing in different things, different threads that we can then weave into our own unique brain. So that is, I think, extraordinary and more needed in this, in this world as we continue to change this practice to accommodate our Western world. Um, I think you do it right. <laughs> Thank you. I am, yeah, I am so grateful that I've been exposed by choice to so many different teachers that I've gone out and sought. And, um, but really, what we're looking for in everything we do, whether our teacher is a walk in nature or a, a research scientist right we have so many different ways of learning and we want to embody that we we want to be able to meld it together and um and utilize the information as an applied knowledge and that means that we have to perpetually be a student and one of the things that i love you know it's a challenge because to speak to some of the things you said oftentimes people will come to me with a question like I would walk into the studio, I'll walk into a massage classroom or into my yoga, uh, uh, my massage suite to work with a client. And it always, it almost always starts with questions. What about this? Or this is happening or that's going on. And so the reminder to myself at that very moment has to be, you're answering a question as a teacher. But in order to answer it appropriately, you have to be a student. You have to hear what specifically they're asking for and then start to grab from bits of knowledge because if you don't approach it as a student, you're just gonna throw up right. some answer, right? We're just gonna, whatever comes to mind. So, you know, the words, this whole idea that words matter, I think is such a great topic right now because we all have so many words that are, going around for a whole variety of different reasons. But when we start to pay attention to this idea that our words matter, great story about this. I was teaching a class once and this woman came to my class every week. She was always there. And every time at the beginning of class, I'd say, so what do people want to work on today? She would always say the same thing, neck and um, sciatica. And I was like, okay. So we would fit different things in and blend them together. And, you know, 
during my teaching, I would say, you know, words matter and what kind of information are you communicating to your body with? And what do you tell your body through your words? And one day she comes in and she's like, oh my gosh, I have to share something with the class. And I said, well, what's that? And she goes, I finally figured out what you were saying. <laughs> and I was like, you're going to have to be more specific. What was I saying? And she said, you were talking about my words. And last night after I had class and we worked on our neck and my sciatica, I went home and somebody was bothering me. And I said, you know what? I don't know if you're a bigger pain in the ass or a pain in the neck. <laughs> and she said, as soon as the words were off my tongue, I was like, that's why they always hurt because everybody <laughs> I get upset with. <laughs> and she said, so what am I going to do? And I said, how about this? If somebody gets you upset, just say, it just flows off my back. And she, I love that. <laughs> she came back a few weeks later and she goes, my back, my, my butt doesn't hurt. My neck doesn't hurt. So, you know, the idea that, you know, our practice is informed by so many different things. And when we look at yoga off the mat, we can look at our breath or our emotions, our physical body or our thoughts, right? We have the, my, my practice, my teaching is informed by the koshas, but I also like to bring in the elements because, you know, we live in this world, we might as well acknowledge that we're made up of these elements, right? And we start to weave all of the different parts into a lifestyle that we're proud to live. And isn't that the definition of yoga? Yes. To yoke it together? You know, when you talked about being in nature, you know, the, having my garden this year has been extremely healing to witness. And I've been obsessed with capturing images of things that are vital and lush and alive, juxtaposed with things that are, you know, getting crusty and entering the end stages of their own life. So the green ivy and the evergreens backdropping the trees that the leaves are in various shades of color before dropping and getting crunchy. So this idea of cycles and my relationship to nature, knowing that I'm not separate from nature, I am a product of nature. And so this idea of interdependence and oneness has to inform living. I mean, if you're choosing yoga as a practice to get you there, that's only one vehicle. Mm -hmm. That's one way in. If you're adding different, you know, spiritual um, study or whether you're a tennis player or, you know, someone who likes to skydive or whatever your thing is that reminds you that you're one with nature, that I think is the ultimate. Everything else we do gets us there. Right. So yeah. we're always on our mat and we're always off our mat. You know, when we're on it, we're off it. When we're off it, we're on it. Um, but we have to recognize that that's who we are. But if it's not yoga, it's going to be something else. If you're a runner, my friend, she shows pictures. She's also a meditator. She shows every day she's running and it inspires me. But I know that she's feeling the earth beneath her feet. She's feeling the wind in her hair and, you know, whatever else she's feeling, um, which is that union. Um, which I think is the bliss body, that union of all of it. And yeah, the koshas, man, koshas, the elements, it's all, it all takes us back to that. Yeah. So since you brought up yoking and unity, this would not be a Teresa Macy discussion <laughs> if that didn't lead me right into my favorite word, which is fascia, right? Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> yes. So 
the inside yoker, right? Our, our organ of sensation, right? Our great communicator, the thing that brings us all together. It's kind of my um, yin and yang of what yoga is, right? The actual yoga practices and how they, why they work so well with our body because our body has a great connector, something that communicates with everything that helps us to understand and be mindful, that speaks to us through sensation, through words, through thoughts. It's just, I put the two together um, and one informs the other, right? If we could use, and I know that you um, are a peaceful advocate, if we could use the way our body functions, the physicality that unites our body's function to our thoughts to our emotions to our feelings which happens in this fascial system to the way it moves or doesn't move it's sticking or it's glide if we could study the way we individually function and then transform that to our family our community our grassroots and keep moving and look at our communities and our family structures in the same way that our body has to unite and work in this symbiotic and supportive relationship. I think we got it right there, girl. Sign me up, girl. Sign me up. <laughs> I'm that, you know, I, there are certain people you just kind of want to dance in their heads for a little bit and kind of, you know, maneuver around the different neighborhoods of their minds. And yours is one of them. If I could, you know, just, you know, take a zap and suck your knowledge into my head. I mean, because it, even just that, the, the images that you evoke from talking about the fascia, which you were the first person I ever heard use the word fascia. Now you hear it everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, but yours was the first voice that I heard associated with that. And that first part of our training, when you got the spider web, the Halloween spider web, and had us each at different ends, pull one end and then see how it pulled on somewhere else. So when we say send your breath to your kneecap, you know, you're not really sending your breath. It goes into the lungs, but your kneecap might feel it because of the fascia, you know, if it's tighter, however, you know, that yeah. works. Um, but I think that is that is righteous, and I would be just sign me up, man. Sign me up. We are going to just continue to grow, build communities, build. So, what I'd like to finish up with in our last conversation is sangha and seva. Now, I say it's seva. I, I know that's not right, but because that's my dog's name, and she got her name because of what it stands for, which is service for the pure joy of serving. Um, she likes Siva, so I always say it's Siva. I like Siva too. Oh, I great. <laughs> so that and Sangha, building community. So, um, you know, that's what it's really all about right now, right? Is how do people stay connected and yoga off the mat? How are we choosing? I think that's really it. Yoga off the mat is intentionally choosing how you show up in the world. What it is that you want to bring to the world what your passion is, what your gifts are, what your love is, and how is that in service of others? So tell me what Sherry is doing. Well, <laughs> I want to start with something that is a little more shadowy and then move more into the light. So the shadow piece, I think, from where we are today, and I've been reading a bit, and what I saw something, oh, I don't know if you've seen The Social Dilemma 
on Netflix. Mm -mm. Um, interesting documentary about social media and how we're all being, the algorithms are created just for you. So we have, and this is not my original thought, I got this from the film, um, but that we're all in our own individual Truman shows. You know, if we want something, it comes up for us, you know, that we're all being um, sort of guided it, to like thinking, to like, you know, imagination, to everything that is like us. So that divides us more than unites us because there's also no check and balance on it. It's all for you. So it, it feeds and nourishes not only our, our highest selves, but also our lower selves. And I'm also part of that. I can see and I can feel when it comes up. Um, so that said, I think we have a lot of work to do to disentangle ourselves from the addiction of social media um, and this idea that um, that is community. It's a very highly selective community designed not to, in my opinion, progress humanity, but to keep us where we are and to keep us controlled. And um, that's a hard one. That said, it's kind of like noticing your breath and coming back, noticing what's happening and coming back. If you can notice that that's happening, then you can manage what you need to do on that end. But what I'm doing is um, last year at this time, it was 20 years after I had started studying um, the mindfulness meditation. I went to the Tibet house in New York City and did a 100 hour training with one of my original teachers. And there were some original students from my original class also in this training. There, I, there were four of us that, you know, a bunch of us would get together on Zoom occasionally, like once a, a month that a friend of mine set up. But four of us, we meet once a week on Zoom. One's in Texas, one's in New Jersey, one's traveling around, and then I'm here in Pennsylvania. Um, but we meet to talk about the Dharma, to talk about our practices, to talk about whatever's coming up, and then we sit together. We started with 20 minutes, and we've been adding a couple minutes each time, so we're almost at 30 minutes. Um, so we sit together, and then we talk afterwards. And it's been nourishing. It's, there are two of us who have kids, two of us are single, there's two women, two men. I'm the oldest in the group, the youngest is in her 20s. And I adore these people. I love them so much. And I have learned so much from each of them. Um, I, when I first met the youngest one, and I told her this in one of our calls, I was ageist. We were in this big room. She was on the ground. It was a hard day for her, probably. She was resting. And I thought, ah, the young ones, like at least get up. You know, come on. You know, it's, I know it's a Friday afternoon. We can all show up. And I told her that. And then I said, our first lunch, the first time we went out together, she started talking and I was wrapped. I was in her domain thinking, I have so much to learn from her. You know, I can't be ageist because I don't know what she knows. This woman knows shit. And I want to know what she knows, but not as a lecherous thing, as a communal thing, because I know stuff that, you know, she was. So we get together, the four of us, every week, and it is, it is a tonic for the soul, truly. So that's one thing. There's a Monday meditation group that anyone can come. I put it out. It started out through Colomet, my synagogue. Um, for that community during the pandemic, but it is open to anyone. So I get drop-ins of friends from different areas, and then there are two or three, you know, committed people who show up every week. But that's a way to create community. Teaching on Zoom um, has been interesting. You know, um, it's another form of community. 
uh, and we get together. And I love after class seeing each person and having a moment to talk to them. Um, we have some vulnerabilities in my house, so we're extra vigilant about maintaining our distance and only going out when necessary. Um, I miss the hugging too. That is my big, but I have three daughters here. I can hug, <laughs> I hug my husband. I hug my pets, two dogs, two cats. Um, I even have a few trees. I can go out and hug if I want to. Um, but I do find that the service piece is, it, it's a tickle in my soul. You know, I, I can scratch it every once in a while. You know, there are certain places I can donate to, but showing up in person is harder for me. So I'll give, I'll do free meditation classes. I'll do things that people we can gather and, and meet. There are a few other things I have percolating in my head right now. Um, but I do think it's really important to make conscious choices of people who nourish you and not in the way that social media does not in the way that they will yes you and agree with everything and you know give you um ads for things you really really want i am impulsive i bought slippers i bought a drum that never came you know i just stuff like that but people who you can engage with civil debate civil discourse about things that matter um, and to know that you're in a place where you can you can get angry or you can get frustrated or you can get, you know, I, the, I work on adrenaline. I mean, you've probably noticed by now, I talk fast. You know, I take my breaths, but meditation is really important for me. I think fast, I talk fast. And so sometimes I have to rewind. And so I want to be with people who let me rewind and say, wait a minute, I may have misspoken or wow, good point. Or, I never thought of it that way. Or I really disagree with you. And I love you. <laughs> um, you know, we're in an age where people are talking about, we have to agree to disagree. And I may say something that is, is controversial here. I think that's true when you're talking about policies or you're talking about um, ideas or you're talking about things that can be debated. But I think we are conflating that with, with the inability to be inclusive or the inability to accept people for who they are. And so if you're unable to meet at least to the place where we accept people for who they are, like I don't have to like you, but I can accept that you are behaving in a way that I don't agree with. But that there are things, and I, the word hate comes in, but I think fear, it's often fear that is masqueraded as hate, that divides us. If you're fearful, and I know I'm fearful, and sometimes that comes off as hate, it's not, it's fear. Um, that's a whole other place. It's hard to, to negotiate someone's unresolved fear issues or hate issues as, as a debate. It just, it's, it's not a place where we can meet. Um, until we have resolved our own stuff, you know, it's, it's hard. And like you said, I am, I'm a hippie. I'm a deadhead. My oldest daughter's named after Cassidy, the song by the Grateful Dead. But I don't want that to be confused. I think often we get judged really harshly. You're supposed to be the one who loves everyone. You're supposed to be the one who, you know, is all peaceful and loving. Well, I'm sorry, but fuck that. Mm -hmm. Fuck that. Um, you know, that's why Sangha is important. You have to be able to be your authentic self. And if being your authentic self in the bigger world is, it's an opening for a lot of harsh, misinformed judgments because boundaries are important. Love, you can love something or someone unconditionally and fucking hate them too. Feel, maybe it's hate. Maybe it is hate. Maybe it is just this 
this feeling that you just can't get to that, that small L love, but the big L, look, I love you. You were born into this natural world the same way I was. Um, I know we, we need to sort of wrap it up at some point, but I had this great conversation with a friend of mine who is a Zen Buddhist. And we were talking about this notion of basic goodness, which is kind of, I want to say a cornerstone, maybe it's not the cornerstone, but it's a, a big piece of the meditation practice that I study, this idea that we're all born with basic goodness. And she said she, and these are her words, I don't want to take any ownership of this, but she got me really thinking about this. She said, goodness is a construct that we create. She said, what if you, someone was born to be the destroyer, to be the one that tears the shit apart? You know, what if they're not born with this idea of basic goodness that we, that we propagate? You know, maybe basic goodness isn't that. Maybe it is that we all born with a clean slate and that your, your mission of destruction is, is rooted in that. Maybe that's it. But it's a discussion I think worth having, you know, that um, this idea of good and bad, love and hate, fear, and, you know, that we tend to conflate so many of these, these ideas and then we create identity and then we get the finger for, you know, you're not that. Well, I don't know who you think I'm supposed to be, but I'm a complex, you know, nuanced person who will not fit in your box. And as a yoga teacher, I, I just, I want to say fuck more in class. I can't do it. If I was teaching, you know, my own domain, I would do that. But I think we have decided which words are higher vibration, which words matter more. Um, but so like to go back to the words matter, if I just said fuck all the time, one of my students for the graduation gift after teacher training, I love her so much, she got me an F-bomb. <laughs> F like on a bomb. It's a paperweight. I love it. But I, I always ask people, if you're sensitive to language, I will curtail my need to express that part because I'm a, I'm a grown-up human who can discern and can choose not to say it. But sometimes it matters to go beyond the boundary to say, this is what society says is right and good and okay under these circumstances. And so we create our sanghas, our communities that we can play with those boundaries and say, you know, I trust you. I know you trust me. How can we expand? Because if we can't expand our boundaries around language, how do we expect to expand it around love, which is expressed in so many different ways? Amazing. <laughs> I, don't know. <laughs> I love you know just because you were saying it the whole time you were talking i was thinking back about us starting talking about your hugs and then you started talking about how we express ourselves and and opening up these boundaries and how we get to write our own stories which we do we write those stories you know we need to disentangle from what we are conditioned to recognize our conditioning and decide do I want to hold on to this conditioning or do I want to change it? But as you went through, I remember when you started talking about the way, the way that you want to speak and what you want to say, that what always accompanied that amazing hug that I received every time I saw you was a whisper in my ear that said, I fucking love you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, 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 yes. <laughs> Which just shows you that, you know, Words are about context, they're about feelings, they're about emotions, and yes, we have a way of 
opening, expanding, being inclusive, and recognizing that it's a really complex world. And not to beat yourself up if you can't find that space of what you think that love is. Mm -hmm. Just acknowledging that it's difficult to hold space for some people is important because then you get into that whole serenity now thing, that whole spiritual bypassing to oversimplify an already simple instruction, you know, or simple practice. Simple does not mean easy, easy by any means, but just to meet what is and to deal with what's real. And, you know, I mean, the word real, we could get into a, you know, we could go down the rabbit hole on that, but what is, what is right there? And even if it doesn't feel good, taste good, you know, in any way, look good or sound good or whatever, whatever that means, um, practice with that, sit with that, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. yeah. The whole sit with it, um, you know, I have a friend, uh, April, she did podcast number one. She yeah. says her sit spot, right? She says, I might be a yogi if, and she said, you know, Teresa said I was a yogi and I was like, I'm kind of yoga-ish, but I'm really not a yogi. <laughs> but she is, she just didn't know it at the time, right? So, um, but she would call it my sit spot. And my father used to say that and he clearly didn't, would never have called himself a yogi. And if I was struggling with something, he'd go, say, go sit with it. So this concept that we sit with things goes back way beyond the lineage or is not confined to a lineage called yoga. Sitting with it is an important part of processing, self-study, which is where we started, you know, understanding that our communities are what we bring to them. And we participate in the communities that we choose. So choose wisely. (laughs) So early in uh, the when I was at NYU for acting, um, our teacher, our voice teacher, she was this lovely old hippie who I freaking loved. Um, but she did yoga with us. We did Cobra, we did Plow, we did um, Shavasana, but she taught Shavasana as um, constructive rest. So she would have the feet wide apart, knees knocking in, and you would put your arms like you were hugging yourself and just let the elbows Um, stack on top. She said it was called corpse pose because you could put a dead body in that position and it wouldn't fall over or something like that. And I didn't know that was yoga then. And then in 1990, that was in like 86, 87. And then in 1990s, I was working at Wetlands, a rock and roll nightclub in New York City. And one of the, this was around 1990, and one of our um, uh, the security guys, one of the bouncers who I loved, he talked about this practice called sitting. And I was like, what is that? And he talked about meditation. It was just watching your breath and you're sitting there and there was no real instruction, but I was fascinated by the simplicity of the label just called sitting. And so I remember talking to my parents and telling them all about this great thing. And I didn't know what to do, but I would sit there and just get quiet. I didn't know about really watching my breath, how that worked, but I would just get quiet for about 10 minutes. And then I found a journal entry from 1995 that had om breathe, ohm, breathe, take in oxygen, let out carbon dioxide. Like it was this whole thing. But I said, breathe in oxygen, fill your diaphragm with oxygen. I thought, no, you fill your lungs with oxygen. I didn't know anything. Like what the hell was I thinking? But there's been this, the seeds have been planted for many years. And it wasn't until a formal invitation to take Lippy's class that I even understood what any of this was, where it started, where I was going. And and then ending up here, which has just been amazing. Yeah. 
Yeah, sitting here with you, Teresa, man, it's just, and I remember, and just this should have been in the very beginning, I know we're going over, is um, seeing you and Larry in class and feeling the connection with you before I even knew who you were. It's like, I've got a hippie sister right there and a <laughs> long-haired husband right there, and we're all going to be friends one day. I had no idea. And then I took the training, and you were the anatomy teacher, someone who never liked science or math or anything like that. You turned me on, sister. I was ready to dive in, and I got obsessed with it for a couple of years, just wanting to learn more and recognizing my own limitation for absorbing the information, but still intrigued. And it was your voice that got me there. You really, and now to be colleagues, to be friends, to be student teacher, I will always take your classes because I always learn something from you. Always. That's what we do, sister. We pass, we pass it around, right? Thank you. I love you. I love you too. I am so grateful. Is there anything you want people to know on how to follow you or do anything? Um, how do they stay connected? Are you promoting anything? Well, I do have these three poetry books and that can be searched um, on Amazon under Sherry Sadoff Hank, S-H-E-R-R-Y, Sadoff, S-A-D like David, O-F-F like Frank, and Hank is H-A-N-C-K. Um, I have a Facebook page called dropandgivemeyoga.com, which was conceived at a time where I was just trying to find my voice again after having children and thought, oh, I'll just drop and do yoga in every room if I can. So dropandgivemeyoga.com, dropandgivemeyoga on Facebook. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm think, I've got the podcast seeds in my own head. So we'll, you know, Teresa will be one of my first guests if that ever gets going. Um, but really just so, so honored to be a part of this, this inaugural experience um, for you, Teresa. Really so honored. Well, thank you. Thank you for taking the time. It is always a fun day when I get to hang out with you. Podcaster, no, I just loved chatting and being in your space. So holding this safe space together for each other and anybody who will be listening. But thank you so much. It was fabulous seeing you. I cannot wait until we're sitting in the same oh, studio holding yeah, hands, I hugging. Feel hugs. I can yes. feel I your energy here. Yeah. Just, oh. mm, right. Please pass love to the family. We'll do. And you to Larry and to all. I love you, Teresa. You're a rock star among rock stars. Thank you. I love you. Have a great day. Bye. I would love to stay connected, to stay yoked. Join the Sangha by hitting the subscribe button, sharing your favorite intentional tip, joining me for a class on the mat, or better yet, finding me in nature. This yoga off the mat journey is courtesy of Integrated Natural Health, where we connect wisdom and wellness through nature. Make someday your now day. May all of our thoughts be divinely inspired. May all of our words be authentic and true. May all of our hearts be touched with love and joy. And may the time that we devote to our practice of compassion bring peace to all beings. Om Shanti. Namaste. Now that we've arrived here, I would not change a thing. Knew that we'd survive here and all the goodness we would bring. Of this I sing. 
Everybody swimming in sunshine. Everybody feeling fine. Everybody join the front line. Ain't nobody left behind. Everybody swimming in sunshine. Everybody feeling fine. Everybody join.